From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance's Interim President, Reverend Dr. Katherine Henderson. I'm filling in this week for your host, the Reverend Welton Gaddy. And I'm so glad that you all are with us today. It's going to be a great program. For so many people and for the nation, Sister Simone Campbell is a gift from God. Compassionate and brave, humble and strong, today Sister Simone remains a beacon of light. She's the embodiment of a covenant of trust, hope, and progress of our nation. And I'm happy to call her my friend. Thank you, Sister. Sister Simone Campbell, the original nun on the bus and former longtime leader of the Network Catholic Social Justice Lobby, has long resisted the playful label of rock star, but the spotlight keeps catching her nonetheless. This week in the form of a Presidential Medal of Freedom awarded by fellow Catholic Joe Biden, Sister Simone will be here with her first reaction to receiving the highest civilian honor bestowed by our nation. They're not stopping at Roe. They're not, you didn't hear them at the end of this say, oh, we got Roe, the climate and guns, we're done. No, Clarence Thomas already said we're coming after the LGBTQ community. We are coming after contraception. We are coming after what people do in the privacy of their own homes and their, their intimate and family lives. They are coming after the things we hold dear. And when you connect that up with what's happened with the January 6th insurrection, it's not an exaggeration to say our democracy is truly at stake. The New York Times headline couldn't be more stark. Christian nationalists are excited about what comes next. It was authored by one of the top experts on this movement, best-selling author Catherine Stewart and explores why defeating Roe truly is only the first step for authoritarians bent on crushing individual freedom in this country and the name of their particular vision of God. So Catherine Stewart will be back with us to delve into this dark forecast for democracy. With a 6-3 to ruling by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade, leaving women's bodily autonomy dependent on whether Republicans control their state legislatures. With an earth-shaking Supreme Court decision triggering the slamming of the door on reproductive rights, faith-oriented groups are at the forefront of advocates, working feverishly both on policy and on helping make the situation bearable for those who are most affected. I'll talk with the Reverend Angela Tyler-Williams, co-director of Sacred Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and majority opinion. With yet another mass shooting roiling the nation last week, a number of American bishops are calling for concerted activism for more gun safety legislation. Their statement reads in part, quote, We call on Catholics, lawmakers, community leaders, health care and social service providers, law enforcement, and families to keep pushing for change and offer prayers, support, and generous assistance to victims. As millions of Americans face a future without access to reproductive care in their own state, Public Religion Research Institute finds that the vast majority of Americans, 77%, oppose laws that would make it illegal to cross state lines to obtain an abortion in another state where it is legal, including 64% of Republicans and 55% of white evangelical Protestants. By contrast, nearly 9 in 10 Democrats, 88%, 84% of independents and at least three-fourths of other religious groups oppose laws that make it illegal to cross state lines to obtain an abortion in another state where it is legal. And Religion News Service reports that the current owners of the iconic Newsweek magazine have filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against former owners and religious leader David Jang, accusing them of siphoning funds from the publication to benefit a shadowy network of companies and organizations called The Community and benefiting Jang and his interests. The suit says mismanagement led to severe losses, as well as the need to end print publication of the magazine, now available only online. Jang and co. are the founders of the Christian Post. Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in part by the generous support of our listeners, by you. 
If you've made a donation this week, please let me say a very sincere thank you. And if you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now to our first guest. Sister Simone Campbell is familiar to State of Belief listeners from her many appearances on this show. But this past Thursday, the already much beloved original nun on the bus took the iconic position back turned towards a U.S. president and received the highest honor our government bestows on civilian recipients, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And President Biden used words that really, Simone, uh, represent you, that this medal embodies um, the power of possibility. People like you who are the soul of the nation through hard work, perseverance, and faith. And I think those words just capture you so well. So I am thrilled, Simone, that you have agreed to be with us so soon after this beautiful ceremony. And so with open arms, we welcome you back to State of Belief Radio. Um, And I just have to say for our listeners here that um, you're wearing your Presidential Medal of Freedom right now, and I wish they could all see you. Um, So... I feel like I'm interviewing a celebrity here and you are, although I know you don't like a spectacle and adulation so much, Simone, but there you were in esteemed company and honored by the second Catholic president of the United States. So just tell us, because we weren't there, uh, just tell us what it felt like for you. Well, I have to say it was truly amazing to be there in the White House to receive we were so well taken care of. We had uh, one of the staff was assigned to our group. And so to take care of my seven guests and make sure they got where they were assigned to be seated and and then making sure that I got my COVID test. And I mean, there was just all this care went into it. And then there was this photo line where our group, we were the third group to get our a photo with the president. And first I went in and Catherine, I have to say that I, I hadn't really thought about what a support our work was to the president and how he feels nourished. And, and that's really a, a goal for me to be nourishment for those in, you know, those who need it, but I never thought of him as one of those folks and so he gave me a big hug and we chatted and all this. And then my group, I had seven tickets, so I had seven folks. And they came in and we got a picture together. And then he was telling stories. And it was really funny. He was holding on to my hand really hard. And so the staff were trying to get us to move along because there were, you know what, we were third. So there were 14 other folks to go. And it was just the dearest thing. And then to be in the ceremony itself was humbling in the extreme. And, but I think the thing that touched me the most was when the president spontaneously, this was not in the script. He he called me his friend. And that for me was such a touching, such a touching moment. Wow. Wow. Well, I I believe that, you know, I think, I mean, you and I have both been leaders, um, uh, not at that level, not at the presidential level of the country, but you know, leadership is very lonely. Leaders need friends, um, and presidents clearly need friends, and that and people people don't realize that. Um, so, uh, you know, at important moments in our lives, do you remember what went through your mind as you had that medal put around your neck? I I I got tears in my eyes, and I just had goosebumps. I, I was just. And there is a picture of me putting my hand on the medal. And I think it was just like treasure. What a treasure. <laughs> and um, and he was whispering to me uh, as he's putting it around, you know, just how important it was for us. And he really admired my courage of standing up in the prior Aww. pontificate and doing the Affordable Care Act. I mean, that we support the Affordable Care Act is really the nexus of all of this. So. 
Absolutely. Um, did you did you try to do any business with President Biden? Did you try to give him some advice? And I can't imagine you're letting a moment pass without uh, without doing that too. Well, actually, pressing pressing a cause. Well, actually, I didn't with the president. I was just so touched and so taken. And sometimes I think that was where my awareness of his need was stronger than of mine. But what I did do was I got a chance to talk to the vice president and the second gentleman, uh, Doug Emhoff, and I got a chance to talk to uh, Doug Emhoff about our new project. And because I know he's been working on the, you know, kind of talking across boundaries and what we've been working on. So uh, we're going to, so we're going to get together and I'm going to tell him more about our, um, what we're up to. And, and then, uh, but the other piece that was surprising at the ceremony itself in the front row were cabinet officials on the, on my right side were cabinet officials and then members of Congress. And, you know, so I, I had, didn't realize how many of them I knew. And so, you know, like um, uh, Jennifer Granholm waves and, and Javier Becerra kind of gives me a salute and, all this, but Senator Coons um, stayed for the reception and I did get a chance to talk to him. And so we're going to get together and talk about project. So, yeah, I didn't let the, that's, by, that's great. Of course, of course, that, that, this is the sister Simone. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, thrilling, thrilling. So um, let's turn to some of the work that you're doing now. But first, I want to ask you a question that I'm asking um, all my wise people, my wise women, um, which is, what time is it in America today? How do you understand this moment? Um, you're somebody who makes meaning um, and puts things together. Um, so help us understand what time is it? How do we understand this moment? Well, I feel like it's a time for us to wake up to the needs of each other uh, because of the hyper-individualism that's kind of rampant and the hyper-individualism leads to fear and this horrible epidemic of gun violence and this horrible epidemic of, you know, dismissing each other and to being so polarized that the alarm is ringing and we need to wake up to the fact that in a democracy, we need each other. And in a republic, we need each other. And let us wake up to the fact that we're in this together. Um, that's for me the the most important thing. And so that doesn't mean I need to change how I think but it means to it means to me that we need to open our hearts to each other and welcome each other even when we disagree so mm -hmm. what how do you understand um that some in our country are um really trying to hollow out democracy um in other words really destroy um whatever democratic uh, processes and um, well that that we have had. How do you understand that? Well, because <laughs> there are extremists. Oh, they're totally they're white Christian nationalism is real. They're yeah. totally extremism and uh, extremists. And what's really interesting to me, I, I've spent the spring talking to conservatives, and it's been really interesting to me that some of the most conservative people say we don't have a democracy. They don't think democracy is an issue. We don't have a democracy. We have a republic. It's a representative republic. And so it's only the representatives that matter to them, as opposed to all the people that select the representatives. And it's a matter of attention. And I think the challenge is for them to see how we get together into a republic requires all the voices to be heard, but they are feeling dismissed, judged, um, rejected. And so with that negative feeling, then they are hyper protective and insistent on their point of view. But what happens is they end up being the worst caricature of what they say is happening. And so 
I really think, okay, this is a state of belief, but I'll say this. I really think what, <laughs> what is needed is for those of us faith-based people is to love them into something more and to engage them. And I mean, that's my current call at this point, I think, is to engage them with love and respect so that they can relax their guard and not be so destructive because they're busy protecting themselves. And what I've learned is, I've learned this over the years, is that when I'm busy protecting my heart, then it's closed and I'm angry. I've got all my defenses up. But if I am loved into this new space, then I've got a broken heart, but it's open for everybody. Everybody can fit. And so the, I think that's really what we're called to if we're going to heal this horrible divide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you and I spent some um, some of our early relationship um, at the Republican <laughs> convention in Philadelphia, walking the streets with lemonade, um, offering it on, on a very hot day to uh, those who were there milling around in the streets, um, trying to engage them in conversation that was more listening, uh, more about listening than telling. Oh, absolutely. Um, right. And and so your your current work. So say more about your current work um, that uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Some would say is naive, um, but uh, knowing that you you have experience in this. Tell, tell us about your current work. Well, about build, about bridging divides. Well, our current work, I'm working with three uh, other people, three men and. It's called, uh, our organization is called Understanding Us and our website, just for everybody who knows, www.letsunderstand.us. And we are creating opportunities for people to come together, learn some dialogue skills, um, and then as a group, commit to going out and using the skills and then coming back a couple of weeks later and talking about what was the experience? How did you do? And um, the idea is in between the two gatherings is we're going to send text messages to people to remind them, to ask them to, you know, how are you doing? We're with you, that kind of thing for support to try new behavior. And then through this very simple method of just listening to each other. But here's the thing that is critically important for me is that I have a, a long standing contemplative practice. And what I know is that prayer and the contemplative practice is all about deep listening, where you listen to the heart of another. And in that, I mean, in prayer, it's listening to the heart of the divine to be open. But in dialogue, it's listening to the heart of the other person. And so in that process, things change. I know things change out of my own experience. So uh, we're just going to try to multiply it and make uh, Mm -hmm. some... uh, Missionaries for listening. We'll see how it goes. Stay tuned. Oh, that 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 sounds great. Um, give us the website again for this. Let's understand. Okay, it's www.letsunderstand.us. The organization is understanding us. Mm-hmm. Great. That's great. Um, we I know the state of belief will want to have you back because we're going to want to hear on, from on the ground experience of, of how this goes. And maybe today you'll get some recruits of people who want to be a part of your process. Oh, that would be great. But you know what we're finding is the progressives all want to be a part of it. Our hardest, hardest recruits are to get folks that are on the more conservative side. So if any of the folks on State of Belief listening in want to help us really get this going, volunteer yourself or get and get a, a conservative friend who you'd like to talk to to join us. And then we can have some skills together. Wouldn't that be fabulous? That would that would be fabulous. That would be fabulous. So, um, you know, economics and economic justice was um, has has always been a part of your focus um, and your work at Network Lobby, um, the work of the nuns on the bus. And so, tell us just a little bit um, about how you understand 
you know, the economic disparity, the economics of this moment, um, and, and really what is happening to people on the margins. Oh, Glory. Uh, this is one of the things that I find so difficult is that when we were, when I was lobbying on uh, opposing the 2017 Republican tax bill and trying to get minimum wage raised, minimum federal minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour, which is a scandal. Um, and, and everybody's complaining that now with a tight labor market, uh, people are having to raise wages. And now some of the, the poobahs of the economy are saying, oh, that's an inflationary pressure. No, that's a pressure to survive. But the thing that's really making me angry, Catherine, is that when I used to lobby uh, Congressman, then Congressman Paul Ryan, he would say, well, just what we need is a tight labor market. We just need more jobs. And then wages will go up. See, that'll be fine. But the problem is then they blame inflation on the fact that our people can't afford to buy food, buy their prescription drugs. And then they persist in resisting negotiation for prices for prescription drugs. I mean, it's outrageous. And those who are most at the bottom, who have minimum wage or just above, they can't support their families. And so again, you still have people doing two and three jobs to try to care for their people. It's wrong on all these counts. We need to raise minimum wage. We need to make sure that everyone is cared for. And now, in the horror of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, we as a nation need to step up and care for every single child that is born. It is our responsibility as a nation. And this includes economic financing for food, shelter, clothing, education, healthcare, whatever that child needs, we have a responsibility and we need to wake up to that if this is going to continue to be the law of the land. It's shocking and it's horrifying that the nation does not trust women, but that's the truth. So now we need to deal with the consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, That's an interesting segue, the trusting women. Um, I know that you and other uh, women religious have had some run-ins um, with the with the Vatican and also the Catholic Catholic U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops. And I'm just wondering if this uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, gives you some sense of uh, vindication, maybe um, that um, that you know how you've been poised and the work you've been doing is has been on the right course, on the right path. Oh, my glory. It, it, is, it is an affirmation for sure for me. But, but I have to say that the pain of the fight, the censure, the shock of the censure of the, you know, saying that we were, you know, promoting radical feminist themes incompatible with the gospel. I mean, it, did, it, it really wasn't true, but that was the perception of Rome. And, and that was painful. But the thing that I've always seen is that censure was really because we had won on healthcare in 2010. The bishops were mad at us for winning. And so in 2012, they censured us. But it was the very thing that gave us the bust and gave us that literal vehicle to be able to lift up so many social issues. And so how could I ever be you know, sad or bad about it. It was a gift. So I was joking. I was joking saying, well, should I send the Vatican a thank you note? Because I'm sure the Medal of Freedom would not have happened if they hadn't done the censure. So there you go. You, you never actually know what's what and sometimes what's good and bad, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, but it goes yes, to this piece yes. about staying open to what opportunities are and stay focused on what mission is, not these extraneous painful fights. Right, right. Um, Sister Simone served for over 15 years as executive director of the Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice, the organizer of numerous high-profile nuns on the bus national tours. Sister Simone's books include A Nun on the Bus, How All of Us Can Create Hope, Change, and Community. Simone, congratulations from all of us on this well-deserved honor as you receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom.
thank you so much for making time to be on State of Belief Radio uh, just the day after. Take good care. Thank you so much, Catherine. You too. We're just getting started with this week's show. Up next, why Roe was just the beginning with Christian nationalism expert journalist Catherine Stewart. And later, the Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. So the New York Times put this chilling headline on a guest essay it published the day after Independence Day. Uh, Christian nationalists are excited about what comes next. The opinion piece was authored by best-selling author Catherine Stewart, who has tirelessly covered this movement as it has gained power and popularity in our country. So she knows exactly what she's talking about, and that's why I am so grateful to have her back with us today on State of Belief. Catherine, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you so much for having me back. So um, let me just ask you, uh, because you're, you're somebody who reads the signs of the times, um, how do you read the signs of the times? What time is it um, in the United States today? It's, it's an all hands on deck moment is what it is. Everybody needs to do their part our democracy is really in peril. Our nation is divided um, uh, in really profound ways. And, um, you know, I think we all need to, um, you know, we can't really understand what's happening in American politics today without understanding this movement, its people, its modes of operation and, uh, and its aims. So, so tell us, uh, you know, back to your most recent article, um, that is, is so alarming because of some of the extremist rhetoric that you uh, so carefully quote and how, how that extremist rhetoric is now becoming quite mainstream. Yes, I've been attending over the past you know, dozen years that I've been researching this movement, a lot of religious right meetings and strategy gatherings and conferences. And I've noticed a few trends and one of them in recent years, is that the language is becoming harder and hotter in every way. Um, people with different political viewpoints, Democrats, are no longer described as, you know, people with the wrong view, but really as satanic and demonic, um, starting to see the mainstreaming of a political ideology called Seven Mountains Dominionism, which holds that uh, the sort of correct sort of Christians, you know, we all know Christianity is very diverse and this is a very reactionary understanding of the faith. They think the Christians of a certain type should uh, control the seven mountains or molders of cultures in order to take dominion back from Satan. And they sort of see um, any efforts to interfere with their efforts as literally satanic or demonic. And this is really, frankly, dangerous. I think uh, uh, democracy depends on uh, people's willingness, people who have different political viewpoints to engage with one another, to communicate, and uh, in some instances to engage in, you know, give and take in the politics of compromise. But um, that doesn't work when you're literally demonizing your enemy. It's, um, it's incredibly destructive. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us, tell us a little bit more about the Seven Mountains ideology? I mean, why do you think that's so captivating for people? Well, Seven Mountains Dominionism, for those in the know, is sort of the idea that Christians of a certain hyper-conservative variety are called by God to dominate the seven peaks of modern civilization uh, in the United States and ultimately the world. Um, they include things like government, uh, uh, education, uh, entertainment, things like that, these sort of seven molders of culture. And this ideology got its start in 1975 when a couple of sort of very, you know, missionary leaders, uh, Lauren Cunningham and uh, Bill Bright, heard allegedly heard messages from God urging them to invade those seven spheres of society. 
And, um, you know, for decades, this kind of blatantly theocratic political ideology was really on the fringes of the Republican Party. Some of the leaders might sort of toss it, its adherence a gratifying wink, but they pretended to the outside world that they didn't that didn't exist or it wasn't really important. I remember many sort of prominent Republican leaders sort of calling those who called attention to it alarmist and saying, oh, this is a movement that could fit into a phone booth. But those days are really over. We're not there anymore. Um, and the movement has made an effort, sort of the religious right, broadly speaking, has made an effort to reach out to new populations and um, to you know, draw other folks into their movement. This is an ideology that is very popular in Pentecostal circles. And so I think there's been a, a really conscious effort to draw in um, Pentecostal leaders um, and, and those who sort of subscribe to this type of ideology. And in doing so, they're mainstreaming um, uh, the Seven Mountains Dominionism. And you're hearing a lot of references to it uh, among leaders who really might not have made references to it just two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the the sort of rank and file people who are uh, a part of this movement, I mean, you you have used the the term, the the, the language, you know, that the goal is to hollow out democracy until there's nothing left, <laughs> uh, which is just, um, you know, so, so shattering. <laughs> um, uh, and so do you think that mainstream or people who are part of this movement are connecting the dots? I mean, do, do they understand what they're doing? I think when you're talking about this movement, you really need to distinguish between the leadership and the rank and file. And this is a leadership driven movement. And, uh, you know, when the rank and file come to the movement, you look, for instance, when they lend it support by allowing the issue of abortion to be the only issue that guides their vote, for instance, a lot of them aren't really aiming for major changes in the way our government is run. I think um, many of them are making a statement about who they are and what they value in themselves. Uh, Many of them are seeking personal power and validation to compensate perhaps for a sense of disempowerment. They've been fed the idea that there's an in-group in America, one that holds these uh, supposedly correct religious and cultural and political viewpoints and an out-group deserving of contempt. And so their sense of validation often comes from belonging to that in-group and all of the sort of machinery of the movement has uh, a lot of the machinery been movement is devoted to giving them the messages about those issues that should matter when they cast their vote. So that's one side of it. But the other side is really the leadership of the movement. Again, this is a leadership driven. Um, uh, it's a leader. It's leadership driven. And what they want is very clear. They want power. They want political access. Uh, Trump gave them all of that. They want access to public and private money. Uh, and they want policies that favor certain approved religious and political groups and viewpoints, along with economic policies that benefit their most well-resourced funders. And their ideology is radically anti-democratic. I mean, look at what happened after Trump started promoting the lie that the election was stolen, even before the election. Um, There was a moment when religious right leaders could have said, wait a second, we're not really on board with this. And there was for some a brief moment of wavering. And then they all kind of got on board, either promoting his lie and distributing it in their channels, or at least like um, saying, well, there are irregularities, you know, the constitutional irregularities and sort of concern trolling about supposed, um, you know, uh, irregularities. But, you know, I've been to a lot of these gatherings, like I went to a gathering Uh, by an initiative called Faith Wins um, in Virginia. They do hundreds of these gatherings all around America in churches. They gather together faith leaders uh, and they had folks there, you know, people like David Barton and Hogan Gidley, who's running some kind of an election disinformation operation uh, that's Trump connected. And they were there giving these pastors the messages that the election was stolen and, you know, there were all these dead people voting and all this kind of nonsense. So, this is a movement that's really on board with election lies, and they've done a, a terrific job of separating a segment of the American population from the facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what the excitement is all about. We can imagine, but just make it plain for us. <laughs> well, you know, anybody who believes that they're sort of activism in uh, the issue of how per- people run their personal lives is going to end 
with the Dobbs decision is not paying attention. They are very clear about what they want. Um, I was at this year's annual uh, National Pro-Life Summit in Washington, D.C. This is before the Dobbs decision in January. And they said, you know, we're going to tell you what the agenda is. We want to uh, introduce a constitutional amendment banning abortion throughout the country, but that's going to take some time to set up. I heard that same message not only from um, Christian Hawkins, who's the head of Students for Life of America. She's one of the uh, key leaders of the um, anti-abortion movement. But also I heard it from a representative of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the most powerful religious right legal advocacy groups. Um, In the meantime, a lot of what they intend to do was laid out at the uh, Road to Majority Conference in Tennessee, which I attended last month and part of which I wrote about for the New York Times, where um, one of the lawyers who's been really involved in promoting uh, the Texas Heartbeat Act and um, other sort of pieces of anti-abortion legislation, she talked about how they're creating um, various novel legal structures that are going to be used to go after not just the abortion providers in states where abortion is still legal, but also individuals who aid and abet, as they call it, aid and abet women seeking health care in other states, um, including uh, people who maybe like, um, you know, drive cars or, or even a car rental, for instance, or a taxi driver or things like that. Another speaker spoke about going after companies that offer their employees benefits for leaving the state to access health care. So the and they're also they also spoke about going after, you know, the kinds of pill medication abortion or morning after pills and, and the like. And the idea that this is going to stop with that is really a, a delusion, unfortunately. So mm-hmm. we're in for a long, a long, hard fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm just wondering, because I imagine that most of our listeners have not been in the settings that you as a journalist uh, go to, you know, these get rallies, these gatherings. I'm just wondering what that's like for you. What is it like? I just don't think you can understand what's happening in American politics today without understanding this movement, without seeing what they say, not just when they're on CNN or whatever, but when they're talking amongst themselves in the forums that they share. And anyone can go. You can buy a ticket and just go like anyone else. And um, and and they're public officials. They're saying things that uh, about politics that are of interest to the public. So I think it's really important to you know listen to what they say and to take them at their word. You know, a lot of times they say things, and I think a lot of folks think that this is hyperbolic. When Louis Gohmert talks about you know we need to put God back in public schools and we need to bring prayer back into the public schools, he's serious and he's not just speaking out there on his own. Yes. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of us have indulged denial a very long time. And I think that, you know, Clarence Thomas, uh, some of some of the um, his conversation after Roe, Roe v. Wade ruling around um, same sex marriage uh, and, and other, you know, other things on the agenda. And, and some said, oh, no, surely not. But the fact is, we should believe it because he said it. Uh, but these things are happening. They're not hiding. We're not, the problem is that we're not listening. Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, what, (laughs) so what can we do? I mean, that what's next? And, you know, a lot of us really support, still support this vision of an expansive, inclusive and pluralistic democracy um, that, that could still be, um, and so, you know, what can we do? What Absolutely. what can we do? Well, there's so much to do. There are no shortages of avenues for engagement. And, uh, you know, the principles of equality and pluralism represent the best of the American promise. And they're well worth fighting for. You know, we don't live in a quote unquote fascist country yet. You know, we really need to all that poor 10 year old uh, in, in Ohio. Um, be able to articulate might beg to differ. It's just really, you know, heart-wrenching those kinds of stories, and we're going to hear a lot more of them. But um, yeah, you know, it's really worth fighting for our rights and our dignity, and this is what the majority of America wants. 
So, I mean, there's a you know, few things just to lay out. You know, everybody says voting isn't enough. Of course, it's not enough. You've got to turn out the vote. You've got to actively work to shore up democratic uh, infrastructure. And that's what they do. Here's something that they do. Two things I'll just mention that they do really well that we could emulate. The first is they create a positive voting culture. They never they never make you feel like, oh, it's hopeless. It doesn't matter. We're a minority in this state. Of course, they're a minority in most states. They're a, a minority in our country, but they vote in vastly disproportionate numbers. And that's how they're able to dominate in election cycles. If we could just turn out the vote at the same level that they do, if young people vote at the same level, certainly as older folks, we would not be in this position. And uh, we need to develop a positive voting culture. Don't just hold yourself accountable. Hold your friends and families, your circle accountable, members of your church or faith community, um, but also communicate to them the issues that should matter. It's not just, you know, about, um, you know, the culture war issues as they define them. You know, it's about uh, values that um, commonly share shared values that we can all um, you know, agree upon, again, those principles of equality and personal dignity and, and uh, respect for pluralism that has been a part of our country for such a long time. And it's, um, so that's number one, positive voting culture and, you know, trying to defend the vote, uh, even as they try to take it away. And number two, um, we need to understand that, um, you know, they say there's no victory without unity. And we're a big, noisy democracy. We're not all going to get everything we want. Being in a big family, you have to compromise sometimes. Uh, but you got to keep a look, you know, your eye on the bigger picture. And so, you know, compromise where needed. But at key moments, we all need to be willing to come together, you know, in support of, you know, figure out what is the best choice for the common good. And certainly look past the front runner, whoever it may be. Maybe you don't like something they said in, you know, in 2004, or maybe they did something you didn't like, you know, in 2007. But but really think about not just their character, but also who they're going to or who they are, but who are they going to appoint to the court? You know, think about, you know, in advance of 2016, I went to so many religious right gatherings where speakers would stand and say, this election is about judges, judges, judges. It really matters, you know, voting. Really it really matters. matters. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. It, it absolutely really matters. The third, I just want to say another third thing. We need a really big tent. You know, we need to, you know, understand that um, in order to defeat the politics of conquest and division, we need to, you know, make room for a, a lot of folks who, you know, may not agree on everything, but they can agree on this. And that is really important. Is there anything, I mean, so much has happened uh, in the, in this world since your book, your fabulous book, uh, Power Worshippers, and uh, which was published just two years ago. Right. So um, is there anything that's happened that surprised you in these intervening couple of years, something that you, for example, didn't see coming? You know, I, I would like to say that um, I would. I, I wish I could say that I'd been surprised by January sixth, um, but um, unfortunately, you know, if you've been paying attention to the radicalism and militancy of this movement, uh, that type of thing was like, oh my gosh, they're doing it. But you know, I mean, it's it was shocking to see, and at the same time, you know, ideas have consequences. And if you misinform people to the extent that they truly believe that our election has been stolen, then they can see themselves, conceive of themselves as the real patriots, even as they're attacking the most important institutions of our, our democracy, our voting system, our, our, our capital, you know, and that was uh, really, really awful. I mean, a lot of those folks truly believe they were trying to save our country. And that's sad. That's sad in a way. Yeah. So um, before we end, I just have one last question. Uh, that's that's sort of a, a question that I want to ask everybody now, uh, which is where where do you find hope? I mean, you are mired in this these realities, um, but what keeps you going, and where do you find hope? Yeah, I think of the words of Kelly Brown Douglas, Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas. The hope is in the struggle, and uh, she's right. 
you know, she, she actually said that uh, and she was referring to not just herself, but also some of her ancestors who struggled against situations that were far more oppressive than anything that you or I, you know, we might be struggling on. I mean, she's a really spectacular uh, voice. And um, she absolutely is. Yeah. Also a, co- a colleague and friend. Yeah. Um, yes. So I, I want to thank you so much uh, for being with us today and, and for all of the work that you're doing and, and that you're continuing to do. I bet there's a book in the offing. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're waiting for your next book. Um, but let me end by just saying that journalist Catherine Stewart is the best-selling author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism as well as a suddenly more relevant than ever, the Good News Club, the Christian right stealth assault on America's children, which sounded a clear warning a full decade ahead of the Supreme Court's recent decision, allowing taxpayer funding of religious schools in Maine. Her New York Times commentary is headlined, Christian nationalists are excited about what comes next. And we're gonna link to it from stateofbelief.com. Catherine, The work you're doing is essential for the protection of democracy itself. Thank you for being with us again on State of Belief Radio. Thank you so much for having me back. So regular listeners are going to recognize the voice and the work of the Reverend Angela Tyler Williams. The work was always important, but suddenly it's essential as faith-based responses to the sudden loss of Roe v. Wade and in many states loss of access to reproductive care become an urgent matter of life and death for all of us. Angela's co-director for movement building at Sacred, Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. And I'm so thankful, uh, Angela, that you are able to join us here today on State of Belief. Welcome. Thank you, Catherine. It is good to be with you again. It's kind of sinking in, I think, that the stakes of pregnancy, of intimacy itself, have suddenly and fundamentally changed in this country um, in ways that we didn't imagine possible. So what what have you at Sacred and other partners across the country, what what did you do to prepare for the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade? Yeah, so Sacred is an alliance of organizers, religious leaders, academics, and congregations working together to advance the cause of reproductive justice through congregational designation and community building programs. And so part of what we have been doing was taking lots of deep breaths. We've known, we've anticipated this decision for a long time. And there is, as you said, there's that urgency of the moment. And and sometimes there's a tendency to let the urgency of the moment move us towards action. And we're excited that there are so many more people who are ready to speak up and join our movement. And we start by taking a deep breath and by slowing down and by saying, okay, if I'm new to this moment, um, what is there that I need to learn first? Who has already been doing this work? And that's sort of what we're trying to do at Sacred is connecting faith leaders across the country with the organizations that have been doing this work for a long time. Um, We want to connect folks and say, hey, who in your state, who in your region is already active on this? And and how can you support them? How can congregations that are institutions within the community that have resources, that have assets, how can these congregations be an added value to the reproductive health rights and justice movement? And again, in this moment of crisis, of urgency, Um, there's a real temptation to flood the phones of your local Planned Parenthood or your local abortion clinic or your local um, abortion fund. And we want, we want to caution folks not to do that (laughs) Um, because those folks are 
really busy already trying to get people who are pregnant right now and don't want to be for whatever reason. Um, they are focused on getting them the care that they need. And the landscape is shifting so much, so quickly, so rapidly. Um, the legal things are changing day by day by day. Um, and it's purely chaotic, um, especially for our partners who are abortion providers and the patients who they're having to get their um, appointments canceled or rescheduled. And, oh, now I have to travel 500, 1,000 miles to get to the closest clinic. Do I have the resources for that? Um, and I think that's what's really at stake here is just the cruelty of this decision, um, the cruelty of the legislation that turns people's lives into chaos. Um, it's cruel when the state attacks people. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, give us a little glimpse into what sacred and I mean, your organization and the faith group, you know, faith rooted groups that you're working with. Um, what are you doing right now? you know, on the ground for folks who are pregnant and, and left without resources. Yeah. So we're encouraging our faith leaders to really provide spaces for spiritual care. The fact of the matter is that one in four women in this country will have an abortion by the time they're age 45, um, much less than the trans and non-binary people who are not included in that statistic, but also need access to abortion care. Um, And that means one in four people in your congregation have had an abortion. And so how about we create spaces for people to share those stories? And and unfortunately, um, a lot of those stories are shrouded in the, are kept in the shadows, are hidden away um, because of the stigma against abortion. But at Sacred, we're trying to create faith communities where people are free to share their full reproductive story and share how that weaves into their faith story, free from shame, judgment, or stigma. So we're starting with that spiritual care, and then we're talking about centering the most impacted. Um, That is going to be people who are pregnant at this moment, people who can become pregnant. Um, And we know that this kind of legislation and these kinds of Supreme Court decisions already impact those who are already on the margins of society, people who are low income, um, people of color, uh, LGBTQIA plus folks. Those are the people who are going to be most impacted by these kinds of uh, Supreme Court judicial and legislative actions. Um, But and then we've got to build community around this. Again, for so long, the world has said your faith story and your reproductive story have to be very separate and that reproductive decisions are somehow different, um, are a different moral case or a different moral classification And that's just not true. Um, There are plenty of folks I know who uh, walked with a couple of friends who have been pregnant in the past few years who say this has made, this has been a profoundly spiritual experience um, being pregnant and giving birth and walking through that um, process for them to become parents, um, as well as others who made this very spiritual decision not to continue a pregnancy, who chose to terminate. but we've got to build community around ourselves. Uh, we've got to build community to get through these next, we don't know how long it's going to be, days, weeks, months, years, um, together. We have got to be together. And then our last um, call to action is really that action planning. And so we're calling on congregations to do some asset mapping. We've got a list of questions Um that we're distributing to say, okay, what are the resources we already have in our uh, congregation? What are the things that we can offer? What is our um, tolerance for any risk that might be incurred by the actions we take in caring for people in our community who need this care? Um, It it is really starting to do that inward turn and look at that um, before we are ready to do that outward care in the community. It's um it's really a new role that you're suggesting for congregations mm-hmm. um and and religious communities across the country to uh to you know do this asset mapping and to to create uh places for story and for for a community of conversation around reproductive health 
um, that's a that's a new role for a lot of congregations, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I'd say it's a new uh, space to do the roles that they're already doing. Um, Sacred leads out of the reproductive justice framework, which is a framework developed by Black women in 1994. Um, and the framework is broad and intersectional, and it is at the intersection of social justice, human rights, and reproductive rights. And so the tenets of reproductive justice are the right to have children, the right not to have children, the right to bodily autonomy, and the right to raise the children that you do have in safe and sustainable communities. And and so it's that last tenet that I think congregations have been really good at. Um, We recognize these other social justice issues. We understand uh, for Christian folks, I come from a Christian tradition, and we're leaning on Matthew 25, the call to feed the hungry, to care for the sick, to clothe the naked. Congregations have been doing stuff like that forever. This is very natural. And so what we're saying is don't segment out people who need abortion care. Don't segment out pregnant people as a separate, different part of your mission. Include that. Include these people. Include people in your congregation um, in that full community care. What do we need now that the landscape has changed? What do we need to have to help us make the decisions to have children, not to have children, and to raise the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, after the Supreme Court ruling, you said, let's be clear, abortion access is a moral and social good. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of uh, people who consider themselves Christians would would not agree with that. Can you, you know, you're a theologian, you're a minister, can you help um, our listeners understand uh, what you mean by that, that this is yeah. a moral, that access is moral and a social good? Before we do that, I have to give a little plug. We're going to have yard signs um, soon that folks can access that will say abortion is a moral and social good. And we'll say abortion bans are against my religion. Um, so check out Sacred for more of that. But I think it's really important to take up that moral space. Um, For far too long, we've watched the white evangelical um, and conservative Catholic church build this movement that is rooted in a morality and a theology that is rooted in patriarchy um, that equates a fertilized embryo, like a fertilized clump of cells with a full grown human being. Um, and it's time for all faith leaders, especially for us who are Christian, to take up moral space and say, no, we respect and trust women and all pregnant people. We trust them to make the decisions that are best for the, their lives and are best for their families. Um, and we've got to challenge this notion that it is rooted that well, if this abortion is so immoral, then there can be no um, no argument against it. But what if we position it as a moral and social good? What if we look to our histor- our sacred texts and we say, well, what does it actually say? And if you look into the Christian Bible, there is no mention of the word abortion. Um, there are actually those stories um, that uh, our Jewish siblings also speak on a lot um, that there's an example in Exodus um, that says if there's a pregnant woman who's injured in a fight nearby and if she miscarries, if she has a spontaneous abortion as a result of this injury, then they're paid a fine. If she dies, it is life for a life. So, So our sacred text is laying out these laws for community that say, okay, a fetus is worth something. But it is not the same value as the life of the pregnant woman. Additionally, there's a text in Numbers 5, 11 through 31 that is a is not one I would normally go to as like, here's a good moral text. <laughs> However, um, right. there is a ritual that says if there's a man who suspects his wife is having sex with another partner, um, he can take her to the priest and the priest will make a potion 
that if she is guilty, will cause an abortion, will cause a spontaneous, a miscarriage or a spontaneous abortion um, to prove that, yes, she was cheating or no, she was not. And, and so, you know, when folks say, well, the Bible is against abortion or God is against abortion of abortion is immoral. And our actual sacred texts don't say that. They don't say that abortion is not um, a moral and social good in all cases at all times for all people. There's literally a a recipe, some might say. Sort of um now, does that still violate the tenets of reproductive justice? And like, does this violate those woman's bodily autonomy? Yes. Um, so I want to be very clear on that. But you know, the argument that I've heard from uh, so many anti-abortion people of faith um, just doesn't seem to hold up water when we actually hold it up to our sacred text. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I know that for many people, this is a very real, real experience. Um, having an abortion, considering an abortion or knowing others. Um, but but just make it real for us in, in a way that you're comfortable. Can you share any kind of stories of individuals who are really facing, who are up against it now because of these restrictions? Um, I'm sure you have worked with many, many people, but is there is there any kind of story that you can share to help us um, you know, feel what this is like for people? Mm-hmm. I am thinking about um, our partners who are abortion providers and my heart breaks for them every single day since, since June 24th in some situations, but, um, in Texas since September 1st, um, as they've had to call people and say, I'm sorry, we can't give you the care that we need. We're very capable of giving that care. Um, you know, we have everything that you need, but we, you just can't access it here right now. Um, and the, the folks who are getting responses of, well, that's not fair. Of course, it's not fair. Um, folks who just descend into tears, folks who are so terrified that they cannot get the care that they need, um, that it leads them to get physically ill in that moment. Um, And I am just, and the trauma that that puts on people who are providing this compassionate care, having to say no again and again and again, or, um, you know, those who, again, as, as states are putting in trigger bans and not like literally day after day, we have no idea the state of abortion care, um, in a given state, because it's just like, it feels like a pinball machine and the whiplash is just so great. Um, and okay, well, we can book you if you've got a second appointment, but not if these first appointments. Um, and so this is just sort of the, we're reaching that fever pitch of what has been decades of a movement to overturn Roe v. Wade to end the constitutional right to abortion in this country. Um, but this is also built on years of smaller restrictions that have been placed that have already made it so hard to access this safe, normal, essential, compassionate abortion care. Right. Are there any um, final things that you would like to say about where people can find um, the resources that people are eager to uh, need for themselves or, or to share? Yeah, you can find us online at sacreddignity.org. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sacred Repro. Um, on Facebook, it's at Sacred Repro. On Twitter and Instagram, at Sacred underscore Repro. We're continuing to put out resources. Um, sign up for our email lists. We've got a seven-session curriculum for congregations who want to dig deep and learn more about this. Um, and we'll have some more trainings for those in, um, later in the summer. So watch out um, and sign up for our email list so you know when we're advertising those and we would love to train you and be in touch um, and really build a strong faithful movement in support of reproductive justice. 
Great. Angela, thank you so much uh, for being with us today and for all the work that you and so many others are doing every day. Uh, the Reverend Angela Tyler Williams is co-director for Movement Building at Sacred, Spiritual Alliance for, of Communities for Reproductive Dignity, an alliance of organizers, religious leaders, academics, and congregations working together to advance the cause of reproductive justice through congregational designation and community building programs. We are so glad to have you here on State of Belief Radio again. Take good care. Thank you. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you also to share State of Belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, take good care. I'm Interfaith Alliance's Interim President, Reverend Dr. Katherine Henderson, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop. Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.